Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to Al Frisco, the SF Podcast, a production of the San Francisco Cultural History Museum. I'm your producer and co-host, Kevin Hunsanger, and in this episode, Megan Mitchell, broke-ass steward and myself, dig into the uncanny history of San Francisco's open spaces, plus, ew, dead bodies. And while San Francisco begins to allow for indoor dining, we'll still hip you to the historic locations where you can enjoy takeaway picnics, because, yeah, indoor dining. Our feature interview is with the San Francisco Mime Troops Artistic Director, Michael Gene Sullivan. He tells us all about their amazing new radio show and reflects on 60 years of sticking their collective thumb in the eyes of those capitalist bastards. And of course, save some room for the studs Marky B, who'll be bringing us up to speed on trends in Bay Area nightlife. Hey, the gang's all here, so let's get going. Welcome to Al Frisco. to be seen yeah. yeah it does remain to be seen one of the things though that it is uh is a stalwart in san francisco and what i'd like to address specifically in this episode is our outdoor spaces you know san francisco i've always had the notion of you get what you pay for here you know it's expensive but the quality of life is unparalleled and even with every restaurant and every store closed, when you walk around San Francisco, you still have these vistas. You're still able to experience the, the joy of being in this city because it's a condensed space with impacted green spaces. You know, um, in these COVID times, and everyone take a shot, uh, now more than ever before, we're utilizing our outdoor spaces in san francisco i happen to be fortunate enough to live near the presidio and mountain lake park and that's you know part of my regular routine now is i go and 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 walk in the park this is what we have to take advantage of we don't have our restaurants we don't have our bars we don't have our places that we've come to rely on that have been san francisco but we do have our open places so i'd like to talk about uh that for a little bit and the places that we can go and we can appreciate in San Francisco. Uh, today I spent time at the Palace of Fine Arts in the Marina District, which will be part of my picnic segment later. Um, but there's a lot of history and a lot of, uh, you know, strong, uh, you know, connections to the place that we are in San Francisco. Uh, so, uh, so maybe let's talk a little bit about that. You know, the, these, uh, restaurants come and go. It's just a fact of life. Uh, but our outdoor spaces remain the same. So, you got any favorites? Megan, any of your favorite parks in San Francisco you've been spending time in lately? Oh, me first, huh? Okay. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I feel like the teacher's calling on me right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I want to... So, I love, like, a bunch of parks. I love Washington Square... I love Alamo Square. I love like all these different great places to go when you're in San Francisco and you want to go where the locals go, you want to go where the touristy spots are. But I want to focus more on, you know, my district and the spots that are not talked about as much. And one of those spots, I swear, McLaren Park. McLaren Park's amazing. Go ahead. I've actually never been there. It's it's kind of oh crazy. My gosh. You get like a little bit of everything. There's like, um, I, I I would not say that this is like McLaren Park exactly, but like you're you're pretty close to it. So there's an amphitheater here, and it's uh, the Jerry Garcia. Yes, I love I love the Dead. I'm a big Dead fan. Yeah. So the so like. To even like have that in my area in the southeast, I think is amazing, and I realize so many people don't know about it. You know, you look at events like um, Stern Grove and that whole setup. This is literally something that's so similar to that. We could we could have those type of events here if we wanted to, and we've had some. I think they say the capacity is like thirty two hundred, but I've seen way more people there. So like the Jerry. Garcia Amphitheater, it's, you know, it's an outdoor concert venue. It's located in, in McLaren Park. It's like running right the outside of it, though, right? As you're like about to pro- go into the park, mm-hmm. right? Great spot. 
Um, and that was really like my first experience kind of exploring McLaren. And then I learned other things like McLaren also has a lot of horseback riding. That's something that's happened there. Over time. Where do they keep the horses? Are the horses in the park? Well, I, th- I think they bring them, <laughs> new. <laughs> bring them from somewhere else. It's something that, you know, Reckon Park works out with some other entity. I'll get some more information on that. But um, the horses do come in and they haven't done it for a while, but there was a time where they brought them and people would go horseback riding. Great place. Something else that always happens is a lot of people lose their dogs up there, which is kind of sad. Oh, no. Like, how many times I've been on next door and people have lost their dog in McLaren Park. Um, another part of the, uh, another great thing about McLaren Park, you know, I went to high school at Philip and Stella Burton, which is just adjacent to McLaren Park. Um, so I've seen it like kind of change over the years. But when I first, uh, and this is kind of disturbing, when I first started looking into McLaren Park, for some reason when I was in high school, I would pass by it and I'd be like, I feel like there's a lot of crime around here. And things are happening and nobody knows because nobody comes over here to check on things. Nobody. And this is like early two thousands. I was like, something is weird. Something's eerie. This is just part of the park. Hmm. But I found out, you know, one of the first weird things that happened in McLaren park was that someone, sorry, I, I feel weird saying this, but like I've read a couple of cases of dead bodies being dropped over. And over. Oh, wow. And people not knowing about it for like a really long time, like discovering it like months later. I had a close friend who found a, she was on an early morning jog through Land's End. Uh, she lives out uh, on like Geary in the 40s and she was run along the, 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 the path out there and came upon a dead body. Um, it was a, you know, gunshot and, um, she's just like holy shit stopped had to call the police and stayed there and you know helped the me whatever i mean she was the she reported the that body yeah it's 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 bizarre to think that that kind of stuff goes on um yeah quite beautiful it happens and i'm not saying like i don't i would actually want to find some like data and see like how many have been found here versus like other areas but that's suicide forest in japan (laughs) there's enough podcast there's enough true crime podcasts out there (laughs) but i did kind of find it like uh, you google i swear any whoever's listening do it now google dead body found in mclaren park and oh my goodness, so many things will come up. There was wow. a body. There was a body that was pulled out of Mountain Lake Park maybe two weeks ago. Uh, my wife was walking on our daily walk. You know, she goes. Uh, we live right near Mountain Lake Park. It's two blocks away, and the medical examiner was out there. All kinds of officers. It was only revealed the next day. Nobody was saying anything, but there was a body found. And uh, it was a homeless person who was in the park, uh, in the lake, and there no, you know, suspects, you know, no foul play suspected or anything like that. But um, yeah, they just pulled a body out of the lake two weeks ago. Um, Lovely. I know. Yeah, it, it's life in the big city. You know, yeah. one of the one of the things, uh, one of my favorite parks in the city is Sutro Heights. It's one of these, mm. you know, weird little areas. That's what I love about San Franciscan parks is that they uh, they're these nooks and crannies. You know, Golden Gate Park is extraordinary, uh, but um, you know the that we have these these places in our in everybody's neighborhood there's a little bit of green space available for us. And Sutro Heights, out along the, you know, the ocean, on, uh, you know, uh, Ocean Beach, uh, very historic. In the 1890s, uh, you know, when Adolf Sutro was out there, he had all of these statues. And speaking of buried bodies, um, they buried all of the statues in Sutro Heights Park, uh because they felt it would make targets for the Japanese during World War II. So huh. they uh, apparently, and, and rumor has it 
very recently that, uh, you know, a groundskeeper in the 70s is like, well, the way that was handled is they just dug holes in front of where the statues were and then just tipped them into the holes and buried them. So if you can find photos from the 1940s of Sutro Heights with the statues erected, um, you'd have a pretty good idea of where these bodies are buried in Sutro Heights. But apparently to this day there are still these gorgeous statues that are buried and uh and waiting to be found i've got a funny uh, suture hide story not nearly as interesting as your story that's actually fascinating my story is just like uh you know how we all have that friend who's super outdoorsy uh my buddy nick fisher is like a like a billy goat he just loves to climb and hike and do all these things and we were up at suture heights and he's like Oh yeah, let's go down to the beach. I know a path, not the normal path. And so there was like this hidden, like like half a staircase left over from when it was a mansion up there. And so the staircase, we went down the staircase, and it took us about halfway down the, the cliff. And then the staircase ended. And we had to f- figure out how to get down from there. And Nick just he's just bounding down because he's a billy goat. And me, I was like, oh my god, I'm gonna fall on my face into the into the highway, the great highway, and uh, all of the beach is gonna see me die. And uh, luckily, I, I did not die. But uh, if, if, if your friend tells you to hike down the cliff, don't do it. Yeah, I was out with John Law. My, it was just my 50th <laughs> birthday. And, and he's like, oh, I, I had asked. I was like, I know what I want for my 50th birthday. I want to get on the North Tower of the Golden Gate Bridge. So this was in June. We're totally in lockdown mode. You know, there's no way anybody's getting on that bridge, you know, for shenanigans like this. But John, it's stalwart. You know, he came through and he says, I, I know a little thing. We took a walk along Land's End and went to uh, something like a, a sewage. Thing. And he's like, this is one of the greatest tunnels, you know, underground tunnels in San Francisco. It runs miles back. And this is where all the sewage goes up. But we were out there. It was slightly high tide. And, uh, oh. you know, and he's like, well, we can scale down this cliff face here and then get into this and do that there. It's pretty sketchy. And the waves were crashing in. And and I was like, oh, that that's enticing, John. But I don't know that I feel like risking <laughs> life <laughs> right now to go wade through knee high sewage treatment. Um, he's like, oh, no, it's not there. But, you know, that's what it was used for initially. But, uh, we did, we ended up not doing that, but had an extraordinarily beautiful view of the bridge out along, I think, that very same cliff face that you were talking about. Your friend just billy-goated his way down. <laughs> um, Megan briefly mentioned uh, Washington Square Park. And what cracks me up about Washington Square Park is that it's neither a square nor does it have to do with George Washington. It's the, the statue there is Ben Franklin. Yeah. And it's not a square. I don't know why it's called Washington Square Park. Um, but, I like um, that. It was on the cover that? of a... I like that. It was on the cover of a Richard Brodigan book, too. It was. It's a yeah. great book. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize both of those things. That's, that's cute. Um, the, I think the park that I've spent the most time in in San Francisco is Dolores Park, without a doubt. When I uh, first moved to the mission in like oh four, oh three, oh four, um, it wasn't very popular because uh, people had still had a, a connotation of it from like the nineties of it being a place where gangs hang out or something like that. And so uh, my friends and I we'd just go hang out, throw a frisbee, throw a ball, and even like on a busy Saturday, there'd be nobody. You could throw a frisbee and not worry about hitting anybody, you know. So we'd just start hanging out, drinking beers, and. Um, kind of you know the early version of what it's become now obviously um but it's Dolores Park has a really fascinating history um a lot of people don't realize this that it was originally a Jewish cemetery and then um in like I don't know you would see here like uh the late 1890s they 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 moved it they moved the bodies out before the rest of the city did because the mission was was a popular place and they moved the bodies down to Colma and then in 1906 after the earthquake and fire it became a place where um for what would they call them, like uh, earthquake shacks, and something like sixteen hundred people lived there um, during, I feel like a, almost a year after the, the earthquake and fire, and then uh, after that, uh, it, was, it was you know it was eventually became uh, the park that it is now. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the other sort of uh, urban green spaces is that one that's near the Transamerica building, the. Yeah. 
yeah, the the redwood tree, the redwood grove, you know, at the Transamerica building, which was, you know, created when they built the Transamerica building in 1972. And they imported like 80 mature uh, redwood trees from the Santa Cruz Mountains to have in this grove. And to this day, the, you know, the majority of them are still alive. They're still resident. I think there are 50 plus trees in that Redwood Grove near the Transamerica building. But that's an open public space uh, that we can utilize. Most likely, but you know, back to McLaren Park, McLaren actually opened the first, I think ever in San Francisco bike park. So really cool. it's like a, a bunch of these like little dirt, you know, hills and different things that you can kind of, you know, maneuver around. But McLaren has a bike park now, and I actually uh, went to its grand opening many years ago. Um, well, not that many years ago, because it's uh, Supervisor um, Asha Safayu is there, and you know it's, it's within his term. Mm. He's up for re-election, but um, yeah, it's it's a half-acre bike park. Um, you know, in the area, it serves the Excelsior, Crocker, Amazon, Patola, Visitation Valley, and so you know. And it's just really kind of cool. Um, I think like a pro um, biker, I'm not really um, educated within the community of <laughs> biking. Well, is it is it like a single track mountain bike uh, course or is it a paved? Yeah. Oh, right on. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah. And it's really cool. Um. So that's like, you know, one of the first things that happened out there. That's pretty exciting. When did that open? Um, it happened in 2008, I believe. Neat. Well, actually, no, it's, they, I think they started like, actually, no, it opened in, in, in 2017. Okay. In October, late October in 2017. Um, but they started doing the outreach for it and like trying to come up with a concept since 2008. So one of the most Instagrammed, photographed parks ever in the whole city i really think obviously is alamo square kind of bugs me that it's you know everybody refers to it as the full house houses yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a great show we all love uncle jesse and you know and everybody we know we know all the little terms and stuff but really like the painted ladies i mean as a san francisco native i actually um referred to them as the, the seven sisters that's beautiful that was uh, the term i learned and i'm not quite sure we need to figure out where that came that's from. an astrological <laughs> i think it's an astrological term there there are the seven sisters in the it's a, it's a celestial cluster and uh i think that's from that um but yeah that's that's really neat i love the way that it juxtaposes the skyline of the city behind them it's just the perfect distance the perfect balance and that park is i think it's just so definitively san francisco park you know it's just plunked down uh you know a square block more or less maybe two square blocks in the middle of a residential neighborhood and then here's your park and it just so happens to be this perfect balance of these elements that make it a really welcoming place to just sit and look at, you know, just to, en Definitely. just to enjoy being a part of, um, you know, it's one of those places you feel like you're really in San Francisco. I've arrived when I've come to, you know, the painted ladies. Yeah. So like one of the stories I've heard about, right. was referred to as the seven sisters, which was the first thing I heard, um, was that, you know, there was a, a family that lived in the house. I'm not sure who the family was, but the father, um, you know, bought each daughter a house all in a row. And so there were seven daughters and that's why it's named the seven sisters. I don't know if that's right. I'm going to continue to do some research about that. <laughs> I'm going to, I would <laughs> guess not, but I could be wrong. I'm leaning with Stuart on this one. <laughs> you know, they, they just redid Alamo Square and um, my friend Amanda, whose uh, character um, while they were doing it, she and a friend would go. Th she and another friend would go through uh, with metal detectors and see if they could find any cool antiquities that were like dug up uh -huh. during the renovation. And she said she found a couple interesting things. I don't know quite oh, where. 
they just redid Washington Square Park too to try to keep mm-hmm. the water levels from flooding everybody who's having their picnics, and it didn't work out so well. It's <laughs> still, you know, they closed it for like a year and a half, and you're still up to your knees in water. Oh, San Francisco. Yeah. Let's go have a picnic with Stuart and maybe even learn some history while we're at it. The Wooden Nickel, which sits at 15th and Folsom, was my first picnic after shelter in place. After being locked down for a few months, we finally got word that it was okay to hang in parks as long as we were like six feet apart. This was just in time for Cinco de Mayo, which happened to be on a Tuesday, so we did a Taco Tuesday Cinco de Mayo thing at Inchon Cajal Park. Hopefully I pronounced it right, because uh, it's in Maya, and I don't speak Maya very well. <laughs> this new little park was opened in 2017, and its name means My Little Town in Maya. This is an obvious homage to the many Mexican immigrants from the Yucatan who live in the mission and whose first language is often Maya. Now, full disclosure, Nancy Chung, the owner of the Nickel, is my roommate. But even if she weren't, I'd still be talking about their food because it's the bomb. A good part of their menu was devoted to San Diego-style Mexican food, and since that's where I grew up, it's like my soul food. For those who don't know, the California burrito has sour cream, carne asada, fries, guacamole, and salsa. And the one at the Wooden Nickel is probably the best I've had this side of San Clemente. In the before times, the bar was also a killer dive bar slash neighborhood bar. So anyways, flashback to May 5th, Cinco de Mayo, 2020. Other than our roommates, Kyle and I hadn't seen anyone else in months. So about eight of us met up at the Wooden Nichols to-go window and got a bunch of tacos, burritos, and a whole lot of tequila, and walked the two blocks to Inchon Cajal Park, where we sat in a lovely, socially distant circle and finally got to enjoy other human beings again. And of course, bomb-ass Mexican food. Luckily, the Wooden Nickel is now open with like eight tables outside. So now when I visit for their $1 shrimp tacos on Tuesday or that incredible California burrito any day of the week, we no longer have to take it down to the park. Though, sometimes I may just want to. Alfresco couldn't be happier to welcome Michael Gene Sullivan onto our show. As the artistic director of the legendary San Francisco mime troupe, Michael has been inspiring the masses to stick it to the man for more than 30 years. And while COVID restrictions have prohibited this band of scallywags from presenting their unique blend of musical protest in the wild during 2020, they haven't missed a beat by rolling with the times, producing an ongoing nine-part radio play called Tales of the Resistance. And for the record, their mission statement is to create and produce theater that presents a working-class analysis of the events that shape our society, that exposes societal and economic injustice, that demands revolutionary change on behalf of working people, and to present this analysis before the broadest possible audience with artistry and humor. The collective of the San Francisco Mime Troupe exists not only to create this activist art, but also to embody our ideals of combating the fragmentation of the working class. We are a democratically run, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multicultural, gender-balanced theater of social justice that by its very existence sustains a vision of community governance of, by, and for the people. But Michael actually knows a shorter one. Never silent and always revolutionary, please join us in welcoming Michael Gene Sullivan to Al Frisco, the SF Podcast. to know your mission statement i love the mission statement of the mime troop <laughs> off the back off the top of my head i had to reach the broadest possible audience with the you know message of workers solidarity and in enti- i don't know uh, it, we, <laughs> we've changed it so many times because have you really yeah actually we have not because our mission has changed but at sure. different times, we'll get a different person in from, you know, this, uh, uh, you know, uh, general manager or this uh, grant writer who says, I need that. I need the mission statement to be 52 words. Somebody else is like, no, I need it to be 100 words. 
Yeah. So we keep recutting it to try to, and, and, and sometimes we'll get people to say, you've got to say this. And we're like, we're not going to say that. We're not going to change the mission statement to get a particular grant, but we understand if it's got to be a little shorter, <laughs> but overthrowing capitalism, one musical comedy at a time is like, I think our shortest version. I think that's pretty much perfect too. And for a mime troupe, you know, I know you're constantly, gra- you know, defending your ability to speak. I suppose <laughs> I, I have I have an old uh, record album of the the mime troupe on on vinyl, and mm-hmm. I just I've always loved the irony of that. It's not you know it's not like John Cage's silence. You yeah, know, but this, <laughs> this you think is, that's ironic? Try to explain that the mime troupe is doing radio shows. Which I love, which congratulations. Uh, this is an, a, a very exciting. Um, is it a new thing for you to do? Have you oh, have you yeah. had experience with? OK, so you have never done you personally as the you know, you're and I know as it's a, a collaborative effort there and yeah. it's a, you know, a community, um, but right. you are the resident playwright. Right. Uh, I'm resident and so, playwright. And so for 20 years. Yeah. You've you've put performances on live in open spaces in San Francisco and elsewhere. And that's yeah. been a really crucial part of San Francisco's community, not just the last 20 years of your involvement, but going back to the 1950s. You know, okay. I know that My you just celebrated 60 years. Okay. Start, I've been head writer since about 2000, but I started with the company in 88 as a, as a replacement actor. So in all of those years, over all that time, it's just been a live performance. You've created yeah. a play, you've performed it live for people in open spaces um, until this year when you've had to pivot. Right. And this has and, been. And it's been interesting, um, you know, because, it, you know, writing for a theater company that does very physical satire and farce and irony and all of this stuff. And you and when you're writing and the writers before me, you write in a certain amount of physicality. You picture it in your head. How is this happening? How are these sound effects going to go with these actions and chases and all of this stuff on stage? Um, so losing all of that and just going to purely uh, 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 audio has been Super interesting. But the thing is, is that I've been listening to radio plays, old radio plays for like a couple decades. I do it to relax for sometimes I'll do it every day. You know, I just sit down and listen to a radio play. So when we decided to do this, I was like, I've been studying this for this for years. My moment is here. Little did I know. So so that's been having <laughs> having all of that that was actually play for me turn out to be research has been great. And uh, working with the other like Ellen Callis is also writing uh, an episode and uh, Marie Cartier, who's writing the commercials, each one of us and the whole cast getting together and listening to radio pay- plays to see how we can tell these same stories with the same passion and energy that the Mind Troop has is, has only without, you know, pratfalls. Oh, the pratfalls are there and it feels really natural. I'm a fan of the old radio plays too. All things noir. You know, I was um, I'm really thrilled that the first episode was the hard boiled PI for me. So yeah. this is, um, you know, tales of the resistance is what we're talking about. And you have a nine part series uh, trying to take the, you know, the history of the mime troupe. Every year you come up with a new production, you perform it live. So you're, you're having to do uh, as we've been saying, radio dramas to uh, still participate. This has been a different year for everyone involved in many different ways. So not being able to perform, you're going to the radio dramas. It feels really natural, Michael. I have to admit, you know, as I, as I was saying, I've been a big fan of radio dramas and pulp history, you know, my entire life. And so to hear your, your approach to this and the way that you've uh, captured the, that spirit and that soul of those the you know the dramas has been extraordinary uh, you mentioned the commercials you know that the aping commercials and the way you were able to um really convey that it must be super exciting for you because it does feel so natural it feels like you've been waiting for this to happen almost yeah uh, some part of me has i guess and also one of the things that's uh really nice is you know like you say the mime troupe we do these free shows in the parks around northern california sometimes we tour to other parts of the state or the other parts of the country uh but the audience is always uh limited in a certain way because mm-hmm. it's a theater audience which is self-selecting and at the same time only those people in those areas can see us and we might only be there for a few days. Whereas with our radio plays, we're on radio stations across the country. 
and right. uh, and we're on the internet on our website and other places. People that have or organizations that have embedded us onto their website. So actually, this is opening us up to a much broader audience across the country and around the world. And at the same time, the shows can be archived so people can go back and listen to them again. And so it gives us a chance to not be quite so hit and run as we normally are. Uh, yes. Because like like uh, this year, we actually did on Vimeo, we released one of our old shows for three weeks. We got a run of Freedom Land, which was a show I wrote about uh, police brutality. And yes. we had a special dispensation from Actors Equity, but we had to pay thousands and thousands of dollars uh, to to uh, to have the right to do it. Basically, we had to pay the actors a lot, which is fine. And we're totally cool with that. But we don't always have the money for that. Uh, to do the videos um we're hoping next year to re-release uh, freedom land again okay but with the uh with the radio plays it's a different contract the there's much less um weight on the actors you know because they don't have to memorize the lines they're reading them just like they did in the old days the script is right there gotcha so that means that you got a couple of coconuts to do like horse yeah shoes. right yeah <laughs> and so that means that we can archive the shows and just leave them for everyone to listen to. They're already done. So our outlay of cash is much less. Yeah. And uh, but so this is something that we're actually after. Like the next thing we're working on is um, uh, a radio version of a show we did a few years ago called Seeing Red, which was a history kind of of, uh, of uh, the suppression of the socialists in the United States after World War I. And okay. then we might do a radio version of Christmas Carol. So we're kind of in this to see how well it works. And then even if the parks and everything open up, we might still do radio plays. Well, again, it just seems so natural and it's just a perfect fit. And you've all adapted so well to it. I'm sure everyone just immediately fell in line when I'm, I'm not sure who presented the notion, but said, hey, why don't we turn this year into a radio drama year? And instead of forcing our, you know, annual vision or, our, you know, our, 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 our play into an hour an hour and a half let's let's do it in nine parts and let's have four and a half hours to tell the same story and it seems like it could be a double-edged sword though that you have this luxury of being able to work up to probably the very minute before you release a show you can keep editing mm -hmm. and you can keep adding and so the topics can be very contemporary much different than you know writing a performance play you know acting and staging and screening and, and trying and, you know, practicing and then producing and performing, you know, that, that takes months of effort, but this would be like, you can do it up to the minute, like a South well, Park episode, something like yeah. that. But then this is, this is then for history. Now, uh, live performances, you mess up, you just keep moving. You just, the show must go on. Everyone yeah. is unique. Everyone is different. Uh, now here you, you've really established something for history and this is on the record. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, part of it is like a Valina Brown, uh, who's a Mime Troop member. She's directing these shows and she and Taylor Gonzalez and Daniel Savio are the ones who are staying up until the middle of the night to do um, the editing, uh, trying to get trying to figure out how to do it. Also, remember, we're all when we're recording these shows, we're all in our homes. We're in different places. So everyone is recording it at their on their own personal system. Then we send in all of those. Uh, all that audio to Taylor, our sound engineer, and he has to put it together. And then, like I said, the three of them have to figure out how the story goes. It's so it's so it's harder than in the old days when you would have, you know, Lux Radio Theater or whoever, and they would they'd all be in one place and there was a live audience. We don't get any of that. We're in our own homes with our headset on recording our lines. So it's been interesting and trying to the the plus side in terms of writing means that um, like I haven't written episode seven yet. Uh, I'm yes. going to be editing episode six tonight. Yeah. Six. And then we'll record it Sunday and then I'll start working on episode seven. So it allows us to be more in the moment. I didn't want to get too far ahead. People are asking me if I was going to try to write the whole thing at once. And I was like, Oh God, no. And it's yeah, four different you? genres, you yes. know, horror, uh, sci-fi adventure and detective noir. And I'm writing each one of them completely in their own genre. And ultimately, all those storylines will cross in the final episode. Uh, and I don't know how I'm going to do that genre-wise, but hey, that's the fun of it. 
Right. Um, well, I've listened to the first four, and I'm not sure how you're going to put all four of them together <laughs> at the end either. So. Yeah. But you see, like every once in a while, you'll see a character from another episode in an episode. Yes. Good. And they cross for a moment, you know. And so, but I don't want to get, I don't want to get too far ahead because the final episode, which will be twice as long, um, oh, is going to be kind of, you know, within a few weeks before the election. And yeah. we're still way too far out to be able to predict what's going to be going on in the streets at that point. Oh, you know, I mean, of anything, I, I, I have no idea, you know, which side is up at any yeah. point of anything these days. So it really is a day to day experience is, is what we're doing. And to, you know, to be a part of something like the San Francisco mime troupe that has been a day to day part of this, the fabric of San Francisco's cultural history for 60 plus years yeah. is really an extraordinary thread. I can't think of anything that, that, does have that continuity i mean there are some certain restaurants that are over 60 <laughs> years old although maybe yeah. not these days not you know now, but they're now yeah yeah you were the birth of counterculture yeah that, i mean that... the, the troop is having that that legacy and i mean i my father brought me to see the mime troop when i was in high school and because i grew up here uh and so i'm like a san franciscan and so he right. brought me to see the mime troop when i wanted when i was in high school and i wanted to be a history teacher and and he said, hey, here's something you might be interested in. It's all performy because I was starting to do a little theater. And it's it's a super uh, it's about history, but it's also very activist. The whole goal is to activate the audience, to get them to examine how they, what are they doing that's supporting the system that's oppressing them? What are they doing yes. to pay into the system that keeps them down, that keeps other people down? How are they tacitly uh, responsible for the oppression they could say they condemn? And what can we do? How have they been hypnotized by capitalism and by uh, uh, militarism and by uh, all the luxuries of the empire? What do we? Ha what is it going to take for us to overthrow that? And I was like, this is great. So at that point, I went, I want to be in this theater company. And I didn't even want to be an actor or definitely not a writer at that point. And so I aimed at this company and I did Shakespeare and I, you know, at SF Shakespeare and I worked with Lorraine Hansberry, I worked at all these theater companies. But with the mime troupe, it was like, this is my kind of goal. This is, uh, we're, we're uh, instead of having an artistic director, we have a collective. Now, everybody does their own job in the collective, but we vote on the big issues of the company. So we are like democratic socialism in action, you know, and we try to inspire people to have that in their lives. We just use comedy and music to do it. Yeah, of course. And I mean, in the first episode of Tales of the Resistance, you deal with the systemic racism, police brutality, union busters, corporate monopolies. And we haven't even begun to touch on COVID and the lurking yeah. horror of racism, you know, that, that come in episodes two and three. You know, there um, the mime troupe has always put society in the face of society. And, you know, I remember in an early, you know, I moved to San Francisco in 91 and went very quickly to, you know, see a, a San Francisco Mime Troop performance. I knew of the Mime Troop before I, I came here through the diggers uh, mm. and, and, you know, their history. So I, I guess, uh, Mime Troop, uh, but Peter Berg, right? Was, yeah, uh, one Peter of the Coyote members. and, and Peter yeah. Coyote. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that, that whole, you know, that, that was very important. And also the, the aspect of free. And, you know, the, the free performances and, and the, the real kind of like, you know, the thumb in the eye of, of capitalism and, you know, capitalist culture uh, was very inspiring to me for a variety of ways. Uh, it must have been so rewarding for you to have stumbled into it and then found your your home there as it's been now, you know, 30, yeah, 40 30 years. years. Oh, and like I said, uh, Valena Brown, who is the uh, director yes. of this show, we're also married. So, wow. Wonderful. Yeah, so we, you're able been, to work together at home. Yeah. To, oh, yeah. And all that time, there was a period there where every Mime Troop show, you know, I mean, she's been a major actor for the Mime Troop for for She's been with the company 20 something, 26, 27 years now. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, having the chance to work with my wife all this time has been amazing and great. And we've been we met at Roosevelt Junior High. So we've known okay. each other since you know, since junior high, we've known each other a really long time. And, uh, and yeah, and it's gave, given us a chance to, 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 to do what every artist wants to do, which is to speak your mind, to really have what you say, see the people's minds and eyes 
light up and open up uh, in the audience and have them go, yes, that's what I was thinking. That's the answer I was looking for. Yes, that inspiration. Uh, and then we come home and try not to talk about it all the time. <laughs> well, that must have been a really rewarding thing for you to have experienced, or the both of you to have experienced the entire troupe over all these years. To you know, to be on a stage, to have so many different people looking at you over the years. You've been looking back at them, and you've been looking back at San Francisco's culture. You know, over the last yourself thirty years, you know plus. Mm -hmm. Uh, how do you feel that that culture has changed? Do you think that, uh, you know, there were there were eras that were much more receptive to your message? You know, the 80s or 90s, you know, and you had, you know, Bush and Reagan to play with, you know, then going into the Obama years were a little bit different, I'm sure. And then now with Trump, has that been a boon? Has that been, a, you know, again, a double-edged sword? How is well, how, it's how always you back on on the culture who has seen you? Yeah, well, it's it's always something. Basically, I think for some people it was much easier when it was Reagan and Bush and 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 Bush. Uh, but at the same time, even under uh, Democratic presidents, there are always all of these issues. We're still bombing people overseas. We're still not taking care of the, the poor and homeless. We're still not, uh, you know, we the wealth of the country still isn't benefiting the working class. It's still benefiting the elite class. Those things don't change as much as everyone thinks. It's just that the president isn't necessarily a nut or an idiot. We have, you know, very articulate and intelligent uh, Democratic leaders, but do they, how much change do they really inspire? They, they let people relax and things get a little calmer, but, you know, there's still people dying in the streets. We still don't have national health care. We still don't have all of these other things, and we still have a ridiculous foreign policy. So it's always going to be something. Uh, and so it's not, and with Trump, I've really stayed away from writing about Trump. I wrote one show where there's a character that was like Trump, but I really haven't wanted to write a Trump show because it's so obvious. You know, everybody's doing Trump impersonations and taking, you know, taking pot shots at him. And it was like, no, he's not the problem. He's a symptom of a much larger problem, much larger set of problems when it comes to racism and sexism and transphobia and anti-environmentalism, you know, all of these, you know, uh, 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 systematic injustice, all of these things that he is simply the culmination of of basically the Confederacy nevering accepting their loss, you know, of just he's just a pot, a stewing, stinking pot of privilege. But that privilege represents a lot of privilege and that people are desperate to not let go of, whether it's, you know, like I said, sex, so, uh, gender privilege, skin privilege, and, uh, birth privilege. Um, so, so it's a lot. Uh, and there's been a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, yeah, and I sure. think that in terms of what's changed in San Francisco, I mean, the biggest change really is after the 89 quake, um, after the 89 quake, everything kind of stagnated here for a while. And my father actually was a, he was a software engineer in Silicon Valley back in the 70s and 80s. When, before it was really much of anything. There were like five companies down there. Um, but he kind of saw what was coming, that you know, at some point San Francisco was going to become the suburb of Silicon Valley. And that's what happened in the 90s. Uh, housing prices and everything flattened after 89 because people didn't want to invest here. But then it started to pick up before the dot-com boom, the first in the late 90s, and rent started to go up and housing prices started to go up because the Silicon Valley companies were paying so much to people. And those people wanted to live in fabulous and wonderful and kooky San Francisco. So we became a suburb. And like all suburbs, the suburbs push out the working class and push out people of color. There's a, a homogenous feel that just increasing uh, a homogenous culture, everything that, and with San Francisco, it's especially horrible because people had moved here because they want to be in kooky San Francisco, but they don't want it that kooky. They want to be near the bands, but they don't want the bands too loud. You know, they say, oh, they want to be in a place where there's lots of people of color, but not really near them. And so we've lost all of this because we became a suburb. Now with uh, COVID and with people being able to work from home, a lot of those people are starting to move out of the city again, realizing that they can live much better back with their parents in Iowa City or something. You know, they can move wherever and still uh, work from and work from home. And they had their San Francisco experience. 
so this is kind of the earthquake a lot of us were waiting for in a way to kind of shake some of the uh, dead branches from the trees and hopefully make the city more livable, you know, back to being a city and not a suburb. San Francisco has been has been hit really hard because of the tourism, you know, because we're, yeah. we relied so much uh, for so long. on. Well, once you this, become uh, a tourist destination, you're kind of screwed. You know, yeah. you need factories, you, you know, because because if anything happens, if you drop off the map for whatever reason and sure. you're not the tourist destination anymore, you still need to have jobs. You know, it's much better yeah. when we had a working waterfront. San Francisco right. was a strong union city with good yeah. jobs, good working yeah. class jobs that weren't just service industry. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you know the story about the Bay Bridge, how it used to have it had trains on it. Um, and that kept the and, and then uh, I can't remember which I think it was Ford bought the trains and then wrecked them and then said, don't worry, we're going to put cars on the bridge for just a little while. My goodness. Uh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And they got taken to court. I think there was Senate hearings and they had to pay a fine of like $5,000, but we never got those trains back. And then within a few years, they had to start building BART for the, for the commuters because the bridge got full of cars. But that getting rid of the trains killed the port of San Francisco. And once that happened, why would a ship, a, a ship couldn't unload here? Why would they? Sure. Why would there be right. factories here? They can't get their stuff up. So they kind of tried to make the city into something besides a working city. And we're still yeah. struggling with that. It's another reason right. we became, you know, I mean, it would be different if Silicon Valley was in San Francisco, if this is where the businesses were and people lived in the suburbs, then we would have a functioning town. You know, right now we're a destination. And that's, uh, that's heartbreaking to me. Like I said, I've lived here since I was uh, seven. So uh, that, idea that of the reduction of the city it's just being neat because it's san francisco and not neat because we have all of these artists who can afford to live here you know all of the bands from the 60s that, that started this whole musical revolution they couldn't afford to be here now the hate ashbury is way too expensive you know the theater companies there were theater companies all over this city they couldn't afford it now the mime troupe is extraordinarily fortunate that we bought our building back when it was a you know a funky dump and uh, well, the, and that funky dump is an extension of of history prior to you, if I remember yeah. right. The the building you're in was the the house of Fantasy Records, right? It was Fantasy and, Records, and so we've had multiple waves of these, you know, like musicians and studios and warehouse spaces uh, that have come and gone, and it really feels like there's just everything is priced out now. You know, there yeah. is no way, you know, and there are, it's not like we're in the Midwest and everybody's got a basement. There are no basements for bands to, to hammer it <sighs> out in anymore. You know, you'll get a next door neighbor just hollering up on nextdoor.com. You know, oh, the guys, you know, making yeah, a whole bunch practice. of racket. Next yeah. You know, it just it doesn't really seem like there's much of a place for it anymore. And I'm really excited to see the Mime Troop be able to, uh, you know, make hay of all of this. That you go, we're in a situation where we can't do what we've done for 60 years. And that is provide free entertainment for people in open spaces you know, in large groups anymore. So we're going to figure this out and we're going to go back to the past and we're going to do a radio drama. And it's, uh, it was so refreshing and just so exciting for me. It's, uh, you know, the, it's just a perfect fit. And I'm really, uh, really thrilled that it's been so successful, at least to these years. Has it been successful for you? Have you had good feedback? Well, it's hard to say, you know, it's tough with a radio show or with a, it's got a radio show podcast. I, when I tell people it's a radio show. They're like, who has a radio anymore? I'm like, it's not a, just a radio. You can listen to it online too, you know? This is Radio Mime Troop, and welcome to Tales of the Resistance, a summer of original political comedy radio plays by the confusingly named, always radical, and never ever silent San Francisco Mime Troop. Join us for stories in four classic radio styles, adventure, detective noir, horror, and science fiction. Every two weeks, we will be presenting one episode written, directed, and performed by Mime True veterans and dealing with the revolutionary issues of the day. Starting July 4th, tune in to... 
the action-packed adventures of the man who is always ready, Jade for Hire on Tales of the Resistance. Let's go have a picnic with Megan and maybe even learn some history while we're at it. Megan here, and in the last episode, I talked a little bit about two businesses located in the Bayview built from community members, which serve goods made from scratch. I would be remiss if I didn't mention one of the pioneering businesses, All Good Pizza. It's probably been around for a little over a decade, but is the first in the Bayview to create an exceptional outdoor dining experience. Pre-COVID or anything like that, All Good Pizza has been doing outdoor dining right by taking over 7,000 square feet of space where they serve their Neapolitan style brick oven pizzas, organic salads and paninis, all grilled on fresh baked bread. There's also beer and wine. It's beautifully decorated. When you walk in, you're surrounded by living walls full of succulents and the floor is covered in mulch. And then you have these colorful picnic tables spread all over the space. You go up and you order from their food truck, which looks kind of like a classic 70s style RV, but then has like the state of the art equipment inside to prep all the fantastic food. And then they source their ingredients from local vendors like Veritable Vegetables, Molinari Salami, and Evergood Sausage Company. I think another thing worth mentioning is just how community oriented the chef owner, Kristen Hoke is. She keeps the things exciting in the neighborhood by hosting many cool events like live glass blowing with public glass or outdoor movies. There's also a farmer's market there every Saturday, and it's just this good vibe and one that the community needs. So Kristen also owns two other restaurants in the company, Tato, which serves authentic Mexican cuisine, and then Cafe Alma, which is just good old American style eats. I've asked her before if she ever wanted to open more restaurants. She said for now she's done, but if she ever does, it will be in the Bayview. So it's just generally an amazing place to visit. She's usually there. She does everything from cooks to pizzas to works to register. I mean, this woman is nonstop. And it's one of our favorite, beloved Bayview businesses. A lot of the times when I'm riding along Third Street, if I'm with someone who's not from the community, they look over and see Alga Pizza and they're like, what is this place? This looks amazing. There's even some people within the community that are just now discovering it. And I think more now with restaurants really taking advantage of shared spaces, everybody's taking a moment to kind of become tourists within their own communities and are just rediscovering everything. So all good pizza is worth stepping outside and going to, and it's located right at 1605 Gerald Avenue at Third Street. You can't miss it. Let's go have a picnic with Kevin and maybe even learn some history while we're at it. It was during a rare day recently, when the sky wasn't midnight and orange at noon, and it seemed like you could simply see forever, that I had a picnic with my good friend and great author, TJ English. I figured that TJ, being an old school New Yorker, would go for an older school deli experience, so we met on Chestnut Street for masterpiece sandwiches from the 90 plus year old Italian deli Luca. Now don't get me wrong, this isn't quite the same Luca Deli that closed in the Mission during 2019, shredding hearts throughout the city, but rather a smaller, distant cousin in a similar vein. This Luca also offers wonderful house-made raviolis, and it's packed to bursting with every treat imaginable. But today I came for one thing, and one thing only, and that's the number one, or Luca's Italian combo, on an Acme Soft Roll. TJ opted for the Caprese plus prosciutto. Spoiler alert, while we both were certainly winners, mine was definitely big enough for two. Luca also set a gold standard for COVID safety measures. Obviously, all their very friendly staff members were masked and gloved, but there was also a sanitation station at the door with masks, gloves, and sanitizer provided for customer use. And only one customer, or very small groups on this same transaction, are allowed inside at once. Now, I've been coming to Luca since I moved here in 91, and it's honestly the only time that it hasn't been so packed with people you couldn't move. I mean, this place is tiny and just chock full of the yummy stuff. 
Now, Luke has always been takeaway only, so that part still felt natural. And while there may be many options in the marina to kick your heels at, the only truly natural choice for us on this day was to head right around the corner to Maybach's Folly and San Francisco's crowning jewel, the Palace of Fine Arts. Initially constructed for the 1916 Pan Pacific Expo, the palace and its rotunda have gone through numerous reconstructions over the years, including a recently completed retrofit. Today it was perfect. I mean, the grass was a little bit wet, so maybe bring a blanket, but the fountain was flying and the fowl were floating. Heck, we even saw a blue egret. So I'm sending this postcard perfect day in the city back to you, TJ. I hope you enjoyed your visit as much as I did. Puka Delicatessen is located at 2120 Chestnut Street in Pierce and is open from 9 to 5 daily. Time to put on your dancing pajamas. It's Nightlife with Marky B. Well, the big news in Nightlife this week, or kind of Nightlife adjacent, is that Mayor London Breed announced a new plan for selective reopenings coming up in September. I mean, while none of these exactly involve Nightlife, there are certainly things that Nightlife people can get excited about. Outdoor hair salons and barbershops, outdoor massage for those late nights of sitting up watching DJs on Twitch and dancing in your living room, um, outdoor gym and fitness centers. These are all things that are targeted to open in September, along with what was the biggest news, which is aiming for gatherings of 50 people um, by the end of September. Now, that's really ambitious, but it certainly has the nightlife um, community all in an uproar about whether or not they'll be able to host parties outside legally um, in for Meanwhile, of course, performances and DJ events are happening outdoors where people are legally allowed to gather, um, in clubs where there's food, uh, where if you have food, you can sit down and listen to DJs or even wiggle at your table. Public Works is doing DJ events from its roof. The End Up is doing DJ events on its patio. Um, and so basically, although these things are more like seated brunches with a DJ rather than wild party nights, they're at least a step towards getting people back into a nightlife frame of mind, which is great. Another thing that we're in the middle of right now is this huge drag festival called Oaklash which is Oakland's um, kind of drag extravaganza tribute to all that is wonderful about drag. And of course, it's online this year. Uh, you can see it on the Twitch channel, which is twitch.tv slash oaklash2020. There's more than 50 queens performing. Oakland drag is a lot different from San Francisco drag in that it's much more radical, much more politically involved, and San Francisco drag is already like that. But not only do you get tons of shows, 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 and glamorous numbers, um, you also get all these great panel discussions, uh, such as racism drag, surviving as a performer during and after COVID. Uh, there's a panel on disability drag, which of course is hosted by a drag queen named Glamputee, which I love. And there's even a little radical queer family extra drag extravaganza for kids. So check it out. That's a Twitch TV, twitch.tv slash Oakland 2020. Um, and yeah, get a little taste of what's going on in the Bay Area. One of my favorite things about Oakland um, as it's happening is that some of the numbers were filmed in long shuttered venues. 7th West hasn't been open since the shutdown in March. Uh, that's an Oakland venue that hosts a lot of drag. Oasis in Sona in San Francisco is also hosting a lot of numbers. So you get to see back inside these wonderful drag venues that we haven't seen for six months. And I'm remembering when we all shared a dressing room together rather than a chat room. And I'm getting a little teary-eyed thinking, I want to shove it blurred down a drag queen's décolletage immediately. So yeah, okay, check it out. <laughs> and then finally, I just want to end with, I did something crazy. Um, I went camping the other week, which is, you know, get a little fresh air. And I think a lot of us are starting to explore the outside after about six months. And what was really striking was I was actually outside at nighttime. And I don't think a lot of us who love nightlife um, who have been sitting in their rooms watching uh, these Twitch channel DJs, these Zooms with drag queens performing. I don't think we've actually gone outside in the nighttime. So I would highly recommend just even stepping outside at night 
and remembering what the moonlight felt on your skin and getting that nightlife energy back. Uh, it was very bracing and just reminded me that we all got to get through this together so that we can party to the break of dawn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alfrisco, the SF podcast, which has been a production of the San Francisco Cultural History Museum and brought to you in partnership with Intersection for the Arts and thanks to generous contributions from Owsley Brown and the Minor Anderson Family Foundation. Be sure to visit www.sfcitymuseum.org for links and supplementary photo galleries from this episode, as well as to stay in touch with other SFCHM productions and events. Be sure to be safe out there. And please don't forget to wear your mask.